This Westwards mini masterclass is a production of Westwards, the Western Sydney Literature Organisation. For more information on Westwards and what we do, please go to westwards.com.au. Hello and welcome to today's mini masterclass from Westwards with me, James Roy. I am your host. I'm a program manager at Westwards and today I am speaking with Lily Wilkinson. Good morning, Lily. Good morning, James. How are you? You well in Melbourne? I am very well in Melbourne. It's a lovely day. Now, we, I was just saying that uh, we, we did a, a, a chat yesterday, an interview, and um, the first time in a hundred times of doing podcasts, I neglected to hit the big red button. So we're back. So thank cool. you. So thank you for coming back and talking about all that stuff again. That's all right. It's like we had a dress rehearsal. Yeah, indeed, indeed, indeed. So just a bit about you, Lily. Um, for those listening, Lily is the author of sixteen books for young people, young adult, and children. Predominantly young adult, I think, aren't they? Rather than the middle grade. Mostly. Yeah, mostly. Yeah. yeah. And Lily holds a PhD from the University of Melbourne, and your area of study was the role of young adult literature in the politicisation of young people. Have I got that right? Yep, that's right. Yeah. And so um, the books that Lily is best known for, uh, well, Bound of Sublime was quite recent, um, and that was that was a book that you wrote as part of your PhD, was it? Uh, no, actually, it was the book I wrote after my PhD. I wrote Green Valentine as part of my PhD, which is about uh, guerrilla gardening and teen activism. Guerrilla gardening. That sounds good. Um, <laughs> do you have a lot of gorillas doing gardening? I'm sorry, that's a joke that wrote itself, and now I'm regretting it immediately. Um, I mean, I have had to explain it to a lot of young people, but yeah. <laughs> I bet you um, And you also wrote a book called Pink some years ago, and we're going to get to that one. And uh, your mm-hmm. most recent book was The Erasure Initiative. Um, which is basically that that premise that a lot of us have tried to do where somebody comes to in a place and doesn't have any recollection of how or why they are there. Um, But the difference between what you did there and what most people do is that you managed to pull it off. Um, Most people lose. (laughs) The the number of times I've tried this and the number of times I've seen other people try it, you get about 5,000 words in and you just go, okay, I'm as confused as the character. So congratulations on yeah. that book. That's um, an impressive thing. Thank you. It is a lot harder than I thought it would be. Like, yeah, it was not easy. Did it challenge your, just as a side, did it, did it challenge your, uh, your ability to move towards or away from planning rather than just sort of flying by the seat of your pants? It was definitely the most planned book I've ever written because mm. because most of it is set in an enclosed space. Most of the book is set on a bus. Mm. Uh, and it's very hard to deliver exposition when nobody on the bus has any memory of who they are or how they got there, so they can't tell each other anecdotes about their childhood or their father or whatever. Right. So it's hard to kind of get to know them when they don't know themselves. So I knew that the book ran the risk of being quite boring because mm. it is essentially just people locked in a room talking to each other and so I knew that it needed to be extremely tightly plotted. So I made sure that every chapter has a big twist, a big reveal, and that big reveal opens up more questions that kind of pulls the reader through the narrative. So it was a very, very closely plotted book. So uh, potentially it could be the, the book that makes someone go, 
Oh, so it can be done, but it could also be potentially the book that makes someone go, I was thinking about doing that, but it's obviously very difficult to do and I don't think I've got it in me. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's how I feel every time I read a book about time travel. I'm like, hell no, I'm not doing this. This is way too hard. Yeah, indeed. You know, um, I think Back to the Future only got away with it before because we managed to ignore massive holes in the plot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, look, we'll move on from that. Um, the, the thing that made me want to get in touch with you was uh, you used to, when I first met you, you were running uh, or involved in running the Children's Youth Literature, uh, Centre for Youth Literature in Melbourne based out of the State Library of Victoria. And you mm-hmm. used to run this amazing, I, I, I don't, is, is Reading Matter still going? It unfortunately is not. No, the Centre for Literature and Reading Matters are both very tragically defunct now. That is very sad news um, because it, it, it sure is. was an amazing organisation and a particularly amazing conference. I can't remember which year it was I came down for that, but it was a it was a bit of a stellar year for for international stars that year. We had M T Anderson, we had David Levithan, John Green, uh, Mal Pete, who sadly has passed away. Uh, Kathy mm-hmm. Cassidy, who were the other internationals? There were a couple of other pretty big ones as well, I think. That year. Oh, God, I don't remember. It was like a million years yeah, ago. Yeah, it was, that's um, true. But, yeah, it was a, it was a, that was a particularly great year. It was a terrific year. And the thing I always really liked about Reading Matters was that it wasn't one of these conferences where you had a big break, had breakout sessions where you kind of feel, mm-hmm. feel a bit kind of um, torn. Oh, do I go and listen to M.T. Anderson talk about the way he structures his dialogue around music from the renaissance period or do i go and hear mal pete talk about football in south america it was um yeah so i I really enjoyed it but anyway the point i'm getting to is that that year was um it was sort of the idea of own voices and uh writing about things that aren't own voices and that sort of is an adjunct to the main reason i wanted to talk to you which was Peak, my my interest was piqued by a news article that I saw quite recently, and it was a news article about a place in uh, in America that rejoices in the name of Spotsylvania Courthouse County District. And the thing about Spotsylvania is that in uh, in their school school uh, council board, if you like, the, the local board, a, a couple of parents stood up and said that they had a real issue with some books that had been found in the school library because they had some same-sex attraction in them. And the way they described it, and of course this is nonsense, but the way they described it is mm. gay pornography. And of course yeah. they found, because, <laughs> right, and because of part of America they're in, um, which is fairly dominated by the, by the Christian right, they were they immediately found safe haven in the minds of a couple of the members of the board who basically said, do we want people reading about gay porn or thinking about Jesus, which was a really weird way to put that. <laughs> <laughs> so so um, the point I'm coming to is banning of books. It's never been a good idea. It often leads to or is, is associated with some pretty dark times in our history. Discuss. Yeah, look, I think there's a lot going on there, obviously. Um, you know, the, the description of, of, like, a young adult fiction as being gay pornography is obviously ridiculous. Mm. And um, and I think sort of behind that is not a fear of, 
of, of gay pornography because if kids want to watch gay pornography, they can watch it on the internet. Mm. Um, I'm not recommending that they do, just so we're clear on that, <laughs> um, or any form of pornography. Newsflash, Lily, um, Lily Wilkinson endorses... No, I don't <laughs> Um, but the thing is, is that literature is obviously a great way to um, to be seen in the world and either reading books about people like you and maybe you live in a place where there are not a lot of people like you or you feel like there may not be people like you. Finding that kind of character in a book can be really empowering. Um, and if it is not about somebody like you, if you were reading about somebody who is, you know, of a different identity or, or lives a different life to you, Literature is an incredible place, you know, to walk in someone else's shoes and to learn empathy for people who are not like you, to understand that the world is not populated solely by people who are exactly like you. And I think that's sort of the push, like one of the really important pushes for the diversity movement is that, yes, it is absolutely important that we have more diverse creators um, and people in all sort of facets of, of the world in positions of power we need diverse people to represent, you know, the people of that identity. But it's also super important for, like, straight white men to learn that there are people in the world other than straight white men <laughs> because, you know, we need that kind of empathy. We need to understand that, um, you know, that the, the world is not populated by one kind of person. There are limitless ways to, sort of, to be and exist in the world and all of those people deserve to have their stories told and all of those people deserve to have opportunities and you know to be able to live their best selves and so the idea that um i mean firstly i think that there comes a great deal of fear from these i mean obviously right-wing parents that you know if their kid reads a, a ya novel with a gay like if they read a david levinson book then their kid is going to turn gay which is obviously not a thing that happens um and so i, I think that, that at the heart of it there is an anxiety there and there is and a discomfort, you know, there are people still tragically, annoyingly in the world who feel uncomfortable at the fact that gay people exist in the world and would like to pretend that they don't. And, you know, I don't have a lot of time for that. It's not just about the, the queer issue either, is it? It's, it's about all, no. all sorts of ways of thinking and... Um, and I know that there are books that have been banned in parts of America because they are uh, they have atheist characters, for example. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, homeless children or children who are experiencing drug addiction and, um, and the, like, the, there was a book around about that same time. Who was it by? I can't remember. Um, that was, you know, occasionally a book will come out that has drug use in it. And, uh, you know, people tend to get very anxious about it because, you know, doing when your children reading about it and it's like I've never read a young adult novel that features drug use that is glorifying it like it, they're all stories about you know the tragedy of addiction and the terrible things that can happen they are all in, in one way or another cautionary tales mm -hmm. and so the idea that a teenager is going to read a book about someone who's you know parent has a heroin addiction and then it's going to be like you know what I want to do now <laughs> I'm going to go and try that like that's not a thing that happens and that experiencing dangerous situations or traumatic situations can be very cathartic to mm. people who are experiencing that kind of trauma and that kind of darkness. But it can also be a safe way for young people to learn about the world, which is a dangerous and dark place. I mean, particularly at the moment, 
um, you know, young people are aware that the world is scary. We've just had a super scary two years. And so literature gives you this very, very safe place where you can explore that and you can explore that fear and you can always put a book down and walk away from it in a way that you cannot necessarily do from, you know, life. Yeah, indeed. Now, I'm just looking at the um, actual text of the of the people who, who made the complaint about these books in Spotsylvania. And, of course, this is not independent or, or sorry, a unique situation. Mm-hmm. There, In fact, the, the Rabu Abu Ishmael, Rabbi Abu Ishmael, who was one of the uh, members of the board, he literally called for the books to be burned. He said we put, should put them in a big pile and set fire to them. And when you go to Wikipedia cool. and look at yeah, you look at book burning, there are over 200 very very high profile incidents of book burning over the year, but over the years, but of course that, it's not limited just to those. Um, yeah, it's not a great look. Like, it's not a great not, look, no. You know. <laughs> yeah, it comes with like pitchforks and the hooded cloaks and like yeah, it's not ideal. It's also like very environmentally unsound. I mean, to quote Christina Robert Burris, who made the original book complaint, they said uh, in a statement, we're deeply disappointed by the actions of the school board caving to the woke mob once again, but we are not surprised. This is after it was recently knocked down. Politics has taken mm-hmm. over public schools the same way it has taken over public health, the statement said. See, there's so much wrong with that sentence. We do not advocate <laughs> for elimination of publications as freedom of speech is still protected and cherished. There should be no place for pedophilia, child sex, slavery, child drug abuse, etc. in our public schools. Now, they're conflating a whole bunch of things there, aren't they? Yes, absolutely. And and writing a book about something, you know, as I said before, is, is hardly an endorsement of it. Um, you know, reading a book about child slavery is not endorsing child slavery. There's no child who's going to read a book, you know, about child slaves and be like, you know what I want to do. Yeah, indeed. I want... Yeah. to be a child slave, to make child slaves. I don't even know the logic behind that. I, I mean, I do, because I think the the argument comes from wanting to protect your children from dark things, from scary things. You know, we have this idea that children should be innocent. Um, and I don't think that's true. I don't think children are innocent. You know, I have a, a seven-year-old and he's not innocent. He will look me in the eye and bald face lie to me about things. And, <laughs> you know, he's not very good at it, so that's fine. But Children are aware of the world, you know, and particularly again post-pandemic or you know mid-pandemic or whatever we are, you know, children know that the world is big and it's scary, and we can't protect them from everything. But what we can do is give them these safe spaces to explore scary ideas. And if I can make a big shout out to the teacher librarians, for example, who's I mean, the word gatekeeper used to get thrown around. It probably still does. And at the time, it was a it was a pretty much an epithet. Um, but to give them their due, the the role of a very good teacher librarian, for example, is to know which books are the right books for certain kids. And I remember when Matt Otley's book uh, Requiem for a Beast came out, and it, it won Picture Book of the Year in the Children's Book Council Awards. And suddenly, people all got upset because, being a picture book, they went out and bought it for their preschoolers. And then when they opened it and read it and read some of the text and saw some of the pictures, I said, this, is, this shouldn't be given to preschoolers. Well, no, nobody ever said it should have been. Um, no. So I think a bit of education is useful, but also the, the teacher librarians who, who have those books that are mature-themed books, say, in a primary school, they have those under the counter and they know which kids are in a position to take those books on and, 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 and read them 
in the spirit in which it's intended, if you like. Yeah, absolutely. And like a teacher librarian is a pretty dying breed these days. There are not a lot of them left. There's not even a lot of places where you can qualify as a teacher librarian, which mm. I think is a great tragedy because like that is such an important role of finding the right book at the right time. And, um, you know, if a kid is going through like a dark period of their lives, you know, if they are stressed or anxious or sad, then a book can sometimes be like a real kind of candle in the darkness. Sometimes reading something about something similarly dark can be very cathartic. Maybe you need escapism. Maybe you need like a great fantasy novel to take you out of this world and put you in another one. Mm. Or maybe you just want like a really fluffy romantic comedy that is just going to make you feel like, you know, just make you feel happy for a while. And I think that that is really important. And also um, teacher librarians as advocates. I went to a school recently that had a very conservative Christian school that had banned all fantasy novels from their school library. They had never had a fantasy novel in the school library. And their teacher librarian had been advocating tirelessly for years and had finally convinced the board to allow, you know, Harry Potter into the library and, and sort of other select fantasy novels. And, you know, I think that that, you know, obviously that's a very extreme case, but, you know, librarians as advocates for young people and the books that they need. That's, that's amazing. It's so important. I mean, I don't, it's an extreme case, but it's not a terribly uncommon case. Um, no. I, I do know of, of, I recently was reading, oh, well, I was, sorry, I was, I was tutoring some students with The Wrinkle in Time by Madeleine Lee Engel. Mm-hmm. And I was doing some background reading on that about the response to the book because it is overtly pro, um, pro-theist. In, yeah. in in so much as one of the witches actually says, um, "Oh no, don't bow down to me." There's that bowing down should be reserved for one person only, and it's quite clear who they mean. Mm. But of yeah. course, when you look back at that book, that book was banned many times over because people who hadn't bothered to read past the first page saw that there were witches in it, and yeah. and couldn't see past that. So I think it behooves all of us to uh, to actually understand what it is we're reading. I mean, if by that by that token. Uh, the line, the witch in the wardrobe should be banned. And, of course, it mm. has been by some people who haven't bothered to actually dig any deeper than the, the white witch turning people into stone. So I think a bit yeah. of education is No, it definitely doesn't. And there's always sort of multiple layers of ideology in every text, and that was something that I looked at a lot in my PhD, of sort of what a book is explicitly saying on the page and then kind of what it's implicitly saying sort of through you know, what the good characters say and do and what the bad characters say and do. And and I find that very interesting, but I also, you know, it can be, I think, confusing to some readers who perhaps, you know, are not critical readers. And so I think that, you know, that's another really important function of literature. It's to teach our children how to be critical readers and how to evaluate a text on sort of those multiple levels. Yeah, indeed. Um, there's something else I wanted to ask you about. Um when we talk about, uh, we look back at the story of James Frey, for example, who a few years back wrote mm-hmm. wrote a book that he put out as a, or he claimed was a, an autobiography, a memoir of his time as a as a um, drug addict, and he it was held up as being this amazing piece of writing because it actually is quite well written, amazing piece of writing, mm-hmm. and, and Oprah Oprah championed him on her book club and so forth, and then it came out later that. It wasn't, in fact, a memoir, but it was a work of fiction. And suddenly he went from being the darling of the literary world to a pariah 
Mm-hmm. When I think about the idea that not that long ago um, people were writing with impunity about things that weren't their experience, they were, and then we had this big social correction, which you could argue needed to happen. People shouldn't have been writing about certain things because it wasn't really their place to do so. We had a big social correction to the point where in many ways now it's much harder to write about a story that isn't your own. Is there, is there a risk of an overcorrection there, do you think? I think that it's a very, very complex issue. Um, and I think that, you know, probably as a white lady, I don't really get much of a, um, an opinion on it. But I do think that, I, I think, like I've certainly heard that from a lot of writers that they are, you know, scared of writing, you know, uh, characters who have identities that are not their own. Um, but I see the opposite happening as well. I see a lot of writers who are just being more careful about it, who are doing it and thinking about it more carefully and thinking about, um, you know, unhelpful cliches or tropes that they might have written before but might, you know, avoid now. I see a lot more consultation. Like, you know, I personally make use of sensitivity readers when I'm writing a character who has an identity that is not my own or even sometimes it is my own. Um, you know, which is someone who I pay to read the book and evaluate it in that way. And I see that being used by publishers a lot more. I think, well, that's great. Like, I think everybody being just a little bit more careful and a little bit more aware of what we're doing is very, very important. And, yeah, there are certainly things that I will not write about. Like, I will not write a book about, say, an Aboriginal girl or a, a trans boy or something when it is the protagonist, when I'm using the first person and when I'm talking specifically about that experience um, because that's not mine and I feel like that that would be taking up a space for an Indigenous writer or a trans writer to tell that story. But would I, you know, include trans characters or Aboriginal characters in my book? Yeah, absolutely. I'm just not writing that narrative. They would just be characters in the book. When you say take... I was going to say, um, and when you talk about taking up space, there's that, but there's also the fact that I I wouldn't attempt to write about write from the point of view of a trans character because I I'm fully aware that I do not know what it feels like to be that person, and so it would actually yeah, just absolutely. be it would just be a foolish foolish decision to make from a a purely pragmatic um, point of view as a writer. Yeah, I, I think that that's absolutely right. And, like, there are just stories that I don't feel comfortable in telling, you know. Mm. Uh, the book that I'm working on at the moment that will be out next year is a fantasy novel. And originally I had sort of set it in Melbourne, but I came, became sort of increasingly uncomfortable with the idea of talking about, because it's very nature-based, and writing about a nature-based magic in Australia with kind of out, out mentioning Indigenous mm. culture and storytelling and it was not my place to include mm. that because that's not my culture. That's not my experience. Um, but I also didn't want to exclude it either because then that felt also, I don't like a kind of betrayal. So I ended up just, you know, setting it somewhere else. I went to my own heritage and, you know, it's now set in a sort of alternate world, England. And so I think that it is important for us all to be a bit more thoughtful about what we're writing, particularly for those of us who, you know, uh, white writers or cis writers, mm. um, you know, I consider myself to be a queer writer, but it's also something that 
you know, I think about very carefully. And mm. I think that, you know, from that we get better stories, we get better characters, we get, you know, kind of more depth and books that better represent, you know, the actual real world and the complexity and beauty of it. Mm-hmm. So y- yesterday you, you were talking to me when we <laughs> had our ill-fated attempt at this interview. Uh, you are talking about a yeah. book that you, I don't know if it's the book you were just referring to, but a book where you you did a lot of consultation with a community and in the end, and asking their permission to use certain elements, and in the end they declined, and you just had yes. to accept that. I mean, that's the risk, isn't yeah, it? That- so, yeah, that was after the lights go out, and because it's a book that's set um, in Central Australia, I knew from the beginning that I really wanted to have the characters in the book. It felt like a very important thing to me, so I figured out you know, where the book was set. I figured out which Aboriginal community lived there and you know, whose land it is. I did an enormous amount of research um, and then wrote the book and included, you know, my protagonist was a white girl and so there were there were certain cultural things that she that I didn't want her to witness, but I kind of wanted her to be aware that they were going on. And I really wanted her as a character to confront her whiteness in that space as well. Um, and I worked with a sensitivity reader who is a friend who's an Aboriginal woman and a writer was very experienced in these kinds of areas, but not from that particular community. Um, and then at the end of the whole process, she, you know, signed off on the book and, and sort of really understood and appreciated what I was trying to do. And ultimately, um, so my publisher and me too wanted to get the permission from the elders of that particular community, and I'm not going to know which one it is no. for reasons that will become clear in a moment, um, permission to use their culture in my book. And they declined and said that they did not want any white person to be representing their culture uh, in a book. And and it was devastating. Like, that news came very late in the writing process. It was quite close to publication. Mm. And I was I was very upset. I thought that I'd done a really good job and I was really proud of that work that I'd done and to essentially whitewash my book, which is what we ended up doing on the advice of, of several people, um, and removing those Aboriginal characters. It kind of felt like a real betrayal to what I wanted to do, but... Like in the end, at the end of the day, it is so much more important for Aboriginal people to have ownership of their own culture and their own stories. Like that's more important than my feelings. So it was difficult, but I know that it was the right thing to do. And I think it's still a great book. And it's, I was terrified that readers were going to be like, why are there no Aboriginal characters? What a terrible oversight. What a terrible thing Lily Wilkinson has done. And in fact, nobody mentioned that at all, which in some ways, it was worse um, <laughs> that sort of nobody had been expecting it in the mm. first place. Yeah, um, yeah. So that was sort of depressing and sad. But, you know, it was a very important lesson for me. And if I wrote that book again, I would have sort of started going about it in a very different way. Or maybe write it as a, as a spec fiction or a fantasy novel where you can sort of play around with those concepts with created cultures rather than having to borrow one that already it, exists. Yeah, um, I think that I just sort of started by finding a community that was more amenable to the idea of it, sure. starting from there, and that's where I would have set the book um, is, is, and, and worked closely with that community from the very beginning is, is how I would have done it if I did it again. Indeed. Well, I've got two very quick questions for you. The first one is, I know is going to be quick because when I asked you yesterday, basically you said, oh, that's a lot to talk about. Um, but I'm going to raise <laughs> it anyway just so that the listeners can kind of ponder it in their own mind. 
Um, books over the years have been banned for all sorts of reasons. One of those reasons felt like, I, I suppose, a good reason to some people, and that was the one where uh, books like Uncle Tom's Cabin, um, Huckleberry Finn, Tom Sawyer, books like this, Roots, I assume, at some point, um, were banned or cancelled, if you want to use that more more recent term, because they used the dreaded N-word. And mm-hmm. what what's the argument around that? Because I mean, you can you can argue both sides, can't you? That it was a cultural, it's it's a it's a cultural reference. It's a historical reference. It it in in a sense weaponizes that word in a way that makes it clear that it was a um it was really an artifact of a of a, a very deep uh, racism, and so forth. What's your feeling on how that should be handled? I mean, as far as I'm aware, I don't think those books were ever banned um i mean maybe they i mean no that's not true they were banned but i I think that the conversation is how do we then present those books Mm. do we want those books to still exist in our culture what value do they have and how can we um situate them and contextualize them for readers and i believe what they have done for that kind of book um like the huckleberry Finn, i think in particular is there's a little forward sort of contextualizing some of that stuff and the N word is presented as like within the book a sort of N and a space. So you know what word it is. Mm-hmm. It's not being used in the book and you understand why. And I think that that's quite important. Mm. I've just been watching the Muppet show with my seven year old son. And at the beginning of some episodes, there's a little a title card that comes up from Disney saying, we're aware that this book, this particular episode contains some content that, you know, is racially offensive Mm. to some viewers and and we apologize for that. And I actually think that that's a pretty good way of doing it. It's not removing it or censoring it. Although I do think there's one episode that has been, um, has not been presented on Disney. Um, But it's saying like, we know that this is problematic, but the card itself kind of gives you a kind of nudge to make you think about it in a way that perhaps as a white viewer, I would not think about it. And Mm. it gives me an opportunity to talk to my son about why it's inappropriate. We're reading Harry Potter at the moment. My son is obsessed. And I, you know, sometimes feel a little bit uncomfortable about that because, you know, I don't love uh, some of the things that J.K. Rowling has been saying, particularly about, you know, trans people. Mm. And, you know, I believe that trans lives matter. And, and I think that her position on that is absolutely wrong. And so I feel uncomfortable reading those books with Andrew. But on the other hand, it is very valuable for us to be able to have something to talk about those issues, to sort of have a coat hanger. And there is a lot of ideologically problematic stuff in Harry Potter, mm. like the fact that there's only one married woman with a job in Harry Potter and spoilers, <laughs> she dies. Yeah. Um, so but that kind of gives us something to talk about those ideas with something that is very familiar to him. And, and so I think that there is value in keeping the problematic text and I think it's okay to still love a problematic text if you still love Harry Potter even though J.K. Rowling is a chef then that's fine um it's just about being aware of what makes it problematic and I think that that's the important thing is is contextualizing that and trying to do better in the future yeah I mean it's it's tricky isn't it because you know some one of my personal areas of study was was uh, the life of C.S. Lewis and the way that he was, he has been variously held up as being the greatest apologist of all time. Newsflash, he wasn't. Or, um, or, or the Antichrist. Newsflash, he wasn't that either. Yeah. Um, you know, no. Philip Pullman and these guys have weighed in very heavily on what, what, what uh, C.S. Lewis was like. But 
at the end of the day, I don't agree with the the way he went about laying out the allegory, the Christian allegory, because I think it's lazy and and kind of stupid. But that doesn't stop mm-hmm. me reading those books, going, man, as a work of fantasy, these things are killer, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, I've read *Line Lewis in the Wardrobe* to my son, and we enjoyed it very much. And you know, he liked the beavers. But do you, Mister and Mrs. Beaver? Did, but I remember you using the word sanctimonious years ago in reference to Aslan. Do you still have that view? Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and and it's interesting that as as a child who is not being raised in a religious context, as I wasn't either. Like mm. he found that whole bit very confusing, and I found it very confusing as a child too. And without um, kind of that Christian upbringing. I, like, it just doesn't make any sense. It's, I'm like, why Why did he die and now he's back again? I don't get it. Whereas all of my friends who were raised um, in, in Christian families or went to Christian schools mm. are like, oh, no, that totally makes That's sense. That's obvious. And, yeah. and it's fascinating. Yeah, it's, it's obvious to them. And I was just like, what? I don't understand. Why is he suddenly back? It doesn't make any yeah. sense. Well, and so I do think that, um, like, again, it's about contextualizing. So... You know, I didn't have that conversation with Banjo. He was like, this doesn't make any sense. And I said, I know, kids. I well, agree. well, when he's a bit older, get him to read um, The Magician's Book by Laura Miller, which, by a woman who loved the book as a child but never saw the allegory there and then as an adult saw the allegory and felt incredibly betrayed. So that's a... Yeah, that's, I, I was that child too. I right. definitely felt that. Right. Um, when, as an adult, I saw a play of it and was like, the big lion is Jesus? What? Why did nobody tell me? <laughs> Whereas I was, I was raised in a, a, a um, very conservative Seventh Day Adventist family, so as soon as I saw it, oh, that's Jesus! Oh, cool, nice. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> um, final question, and thank you so much for your time. We've gone a little bit over, but thank you for taking the time. Um, what advice would you offer to any any reader who is wrestling with the idea of how do I represent or or how do I um, how do I put things on the page that people might find uh, difficult or confronting or or offensive even? I think that it is very much about the context. It's about what you're doing and it like there's no hard and fast rule. And I think part of the problem that we find ourselves in is that people want rules. People want to be like, I'm allowed to write this and I'm not allowed to write that. Mm-hmm. And we don't have that. It's always going to be on a case-by-case basis. So the best thing you can do as a writer is if you are writing about someone's experience that is not your experience, you need to find people who, you know, who live that identity, who have had that experience and talk to them about what you're doing. With the fantasy novel that I am, have just written, originally I had a character who I wanted to be trans for various reasons. They were based on a real historical person. They're not in the book at all now. But, um, and I talked to a trans woman about the idea and she showed me the ways in which that idea and that story that I had planned might have been harmful to some trans readers because it brought into, you know, particular stereotypes. And she was absolutely right. And I just hadn't sort of seen it in that way. And so I just didn't do it. And I went down a different path and, and, you know, it was easy to abandon that idea because I absolutely knew that she was right. And so it is about listening. And when somebody tells you something that you don't like, tough luck, you also still have to listen to it and so sometimes you will have to give up a part of your story or an idea and or an entire novel in your case right yeah (laughs) um well it wasn't the entire novel but yes a a big chunk of the novel Mm. um and so 
it is just about listening. It's about being aware. It's about being willing to change. And it's about really thinking. And the thing that I always try to do, you know, I try to approach every interaction I have with kindness and sometimes I fail and sometimes I succeed. But when I am itching to have a fight with somebody on the internet about something, I always try to think, like, what is the world that I want to live in? Like, Mm. what is my ideal future world? And will what I'm doing now contribute to that? Like, am I on the path to making that world better? Or do I just want to fight with my anti-vax ex-friend on Facebook because I'm (laughs) angry at her opinion? Mm. But it's like telling her that she's wrong is actually not going to help. So it is about, like, what are the consequences for my actions? What is me writing this book going to achieve? Am I on that path towards, you know, towards, you know, Martin Luther King's arcing towards justice? Like, am I trying to make the world better and is this action going to achieve that? And who can I consult to make sure that those those um, choices are made more with more um, more informed... Sensitivity. Yeah, sensitivity, yeah, indeed. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And yeah. one last, super last question for you. Um, do you still hate love, actually? I just had this conversation with my mother like two days ago who watched Love Actually for the first time. Oh, no. And I think that she'd never seen it before. And she was like, it's rubbish. Um, but we agreed in the end. And, and my husband is a very big fan of Love Actually. But we agree what? on it now. Too, no. The, that's the like, thing no. about... Well, no. Here is the thing about Love Actually is there is a great film in there. Mm. And it's surrounded by nonsense. Mm-hmm. So you need to keep... Emma Thompson and Alan Rickman. Mm-hmm. You need to keep Hugh Grant because he's just so bloody charming. You keep um, Liam Neeson, but you get rid of the moment with Claudia Schiffer at the end because I hate that bit. And then you get rid of almost everything. Else. Oh, the guy who goes over to the, the guy who goes over to sleep with all the models in the UK like that. Idiot. Oh, yeah. he is, he's got he's got to go. Absolutely, get rid of that. Get rid of the Colin Firth one. I love Colin Firth, but I hate that story. You get rid of um, just all of the other bits. Like all of the other nonsense that doesn't contribute to that chorus story. Oh, you keep Bill Nye and his manager. That's mm. beautiful. And you keep the guy standing. You keep the guy standing at the door, putting out the um, the Bob Dylan cards to tell Kira Knightley how much he loves her. No, because what an incredible creep! What a te- <laughs> what kind of monster goes to his newly married best friend's house to be like BTW? I am in love with your wife. Like. What a terrible human. We should not be holding this up as an example of love. That's not love. That's whatever the opposite of love is. It's vile. The, the best thing that came out of that movie for me was that I went and that's that version of um, both sides now that plays while um, Emma Thompson is discovering that uh, it wasn't in fact a necklace for her but a CD. Yeah. Um, yeah. That version of both sides now comes from an album of Joni Mitchell's where she's done a whole bunch of Re, re, of covers of her own stuff in this really beautiful way. Mm-hmm. So I can really recommend that album if anyone hasn't listened to it. Um, yeah, Emma Thompson's performance in that moment is spectacular and it is worth keeping the film just for that moment. Yeah, but not much else. Maybe I think you're right. I, I've, <laughs> I've, I've made that point many times as well, is that it's just too many stories. And to anyone listening who's a writer, maybe a B, a B story, maybe a C brackets D story, but... Not ten different stories in one movie. That's just silly. Yeah, I yeah. agree. Anyway, <laughs> I just remember saying to you in, in um, Tassie one time when we were on tour, I said something about love action. You went, oh, God, what a piece of crap. And I went, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Because everyone else I knew was, oh, Christmas, best Christmas movie ever. I'm going, no, no, it's the worst Christmas movie ever. I'd rather watch 
watched that horrible one with Tom Hanks, the uh, what was it, Polar Express, and that was awful. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So, Lily Wilkinson, thank you so much for chatting with us again. Um, your website is Lily Wilkinson, L I L I Wilkinson.com. Is that correct? Yep. There's no mm-hmm. AU on the end or anything. It's just a dot com. You can put either. Both will go to the same place. Oh, will I? Because my, my website, mm-hmm. if you'd leave the AU off, you end up with a, a guy who makes fishing lures in Wisconsin, I think. So, that's, that's a weird thing. Yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway. Thank you so much for talking to us. Really appreciate it. And uh, we'll talk again soon. Brilliant. All right. Thanks, James. Bye.